I would like to begin this morning by reading the complete passage before us pertaining to the second beast. Revelation 13, beginning with verse 11 and to the end of the chapter. Revelation 13, beginning with verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast, whose fatal wound was healed. He performs great signs, so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes all, the small and the great and the rich and the poor and the free men and their slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. Now we might break this passage down into a useful outline. In verse 11 we have his appearance and speech. Verse 12, his authority. Verses 13 to 15, magic, he's a magician. Verses 16 to 18, well, he's also an economist. There are a number of ways we might describe the false prophet's position in regards to Antichrist, the first beast. Predominantly, he is his vizier sharing some of his power and speaking for him. Historically, say in antiquity, the vizier would be the highest-ranking non-royal. That's how it was in Egypt. Think Pharaoh and Joseph. Joseph was the vizier. Or you could say prime minister, but it's not like the... wouldn't be like the uh, uh, British prime minister. But he's the second-in-command. If, if the king can delegate to him all authority. Didn't, didn't Pastor Jeremy just this morning point out the passage where somebody came to Pharaoh and said, here's the problem, see Joseph. He's also his wingman, his right-hand man. He's his PR man, public relations, antichrist agent, 
and enabler. He represents, falsely, the more religious side of the team. If the first beast is the politician, the second beast is the high priest or prophet. I want to just point out, first of all, the the verbs used in this passage to describe the work of the second beast. They kind of stand out. Verse 12, he exercises the authority of the first beast. Verse 12, he makes the people do something. Verse 13, he performs great signs. He makes fire come down out of heaven. He deceives the people on the earth. It is he who will give breath to the image of the beast. The word is pneuma, spirit, wind. Verse 16, he causes, he makes people be branded with the mark of the beast, and it is he who ensures that no one can buy or sell without it. So this is a busy guy doing important things, and he makes people do things. Not your typical priest or prophet. More than anything else, however, he deceives. That's his number one job description. He fools people. The second beast is, we might say, kindred to his boss. The same word for beast, therion, is used for both. That's why in some passages we might get a little confused. Which one are we talking about? And the word for another here, as in uh, another. I saw another beast coming up, verse, verse 11. is allos, which means one like in kind, or another of the same kind. They are, they, they are both of the same kind. As the chart, number 15, indicates, the placement of this text would fall into place within the current narrative, that is, the blowing of the seventh trumpet. Now, I've argued that the first beast, the person, comes onto the scene early on, before he's even known as a beast, or uh, he's, he's there, perhaps even before the tribulation, but certainly at the inception of the tribulation. We can't say for sure, but there's evidence that the second beast, like the first, is on the scene early. That's why I changed the arrow. But then rises to prominence and power along with Christ. More on this in a moment. Hmm? Thank you. A little bit of a difference there, isn't there? Thank you. I've often relied on Isla to slap me upside the head. And My pleasure. <laughs> yeah, mention the arrows. Yeah. Okay, verse 11. The birth, as it were, of the false prophet. So, like the first beast who comes up out of the sea, it's as if this is, we're being shown their introduction to the world, but really not. It's showing them in their roles, and they actually have been around for some time. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, 
and he spoke as a dragon. Right off we see that like his boss, this guy's a phony. The granddad of all liars is Satan, showing himself to be sweetness and light to mask who and what he truly is. His son, the beast, is a chip off the old block, as is his son's right-hand man, the counterfeit prophet. Turn, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And let's read verses 13 to 15. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Expands on this in his counsel to his spiritual son, Timothy. 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 to 2. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. We learn three important things about the false prophet in verse 11. By the way, we get that label false prophet from chapter 19, verse 20, and 20, verse 10, where it reads, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. So, the first thing, then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. The first beast rose out of the sea. This second beast rises out of the earth. There are all sorts of opinions on the difference, why, what it means. What is meant by out of the sea for the first beast and what is meant by out of the earth for the other. One possibility is to think of it this way. In ancient times, the sea, the sea, S-E-A, was seen as more chaotic, more turbulent, more threatening than the land. So we might extrapolate that here to conclude that Antichrist from the sea will be more dangerous. His rule will be more world-altering and catastrophic than that of the false prophet. Remember in the description of Antichrist in Daniel 7, we read that he will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One, and he'll intend to make alterations in time, times and in law. So he's, he's going to change everything. He's gonna, the earth is going to be a different place. That's Daniel 7.25a. The false prophet will be powerful, doing great evil during this time, as he too is indwelt by Satan. 
but he'll not be the one in charge, and he won't be the figurehead. This is one way to consider the contrast between sea and earth. There are many others that could hold true as well. Second thing is he had two horns like a lamb. This refers to his appearance. Not that he had horns, but that he had a benign appearance. Even gentle. (laughs) And it, it includes his behavior. Not just how he looks, but his behavior. So the second thing we learn is that on the outside, he has, he has the appearance of a gentle, harmless lamb. And herein lies his deceit. For he at the same time spoke as a dragon. The third thing. Henry Alford writes, An important distinction exists between the two beasts, in that this second one has two horns like a lamb. In other words, this second beast puts on a mild and lamb-like appearance, which the other did not. But it speaks as a dragon. Its words, which carry its real character, are fierce and unrelenting. While it professes that which is gentle, its behests are cruel. At least 2,000 years before these two individuals will come to power. Jesus, in His Sermon on the Mount, warned us about falling prey to such liars. Let's look at Matthew chapter 7, in the middle of His Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7. 15 through 17. Thank you. Thought I'd help you out there. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. We cannot know who and what they truly are by how they look but we're to judge them by what they do and accomplish, their fruit. This second beast will cause great harm by encouraging people away from Christ. If you let that percolate in you a little bit, it's kind of kind of creepy. I mean, it, it almost... It almost competes with the evil of the first beast. How evil to pull people away from Christ, which is, of course, what their father is doing every hour of every day. We often ask, why does Satan keep doing it? He knows how the Bible ends. Why does he keep doing this? He's trying to destroy as many people as possible. That's probably his first motive, his highest motive, his lowest motive. He wants as few people dwelling with God as possible. That's why he keeps doing it. That's evil. So this beast encourages people away from Christ to worship instead the image of the first beast. 
In so doing, he will lead countless millions, like sheep, into the torment of eternal fire. You might even say he's the evangelist of the beast and of Christ. That too, Jesus spoke of in Matthew seven nineteen. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This will be the end of the false prophet, Revelation twenty ten and nineteen twenty. He will drag all these idol worshippers along with him into the fire. Finally, Jesus told his disciples that if they had seen him, they had seen the Father, John fourteen nine. Those alive during the Great Tribulation will probably not be aware that when they have heard the second beast, they will have heard the words of his father, the dragon. It says, and he spoke as a dragon, like father, like son. Verse 12, he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. Let me throw in a sidebar here. John Walvoord points out that evidence exists in the Revelation to suggest that the false prophet is not just a religious figure working with Antichrist during the height of his power during the Great Tribulation, but that he will be the head of the apostate church that will almost certainly be in place at the end. This is the longest sentence I've ever read. (laughs) Written. I wrote it. My goodness. I normally... Let me paraphrase. Maybe that'd be better. This second beast, we know, we see him here as the key religious figure during the height of the or the depth of the great tribulation. When Antichrist is at the peak of his power, this guy will be at the peak of his power. Well, what Walvert is bringing out is that there's evidence to show that he's also well before this the high priest, or we might say, others might say, many might say, Pope of the apostate church leading into the tribulation. The apostate church will almost certainly be in place at the inception of the tribulation or immediately thereafter replaced to replace the true church which is just left. Christians are gone. The church is gone. Probably the spirit as we know it now on earth is gone. His influence is gone. Wide open. The apostate church takes over. Fills that void. Now we'll look at this in greater detail when we get to chapter 17. But for now think of it this way. The political power structure at the time will be likened to a revived Roman Empire. A, a world empire. While the religious power structure at work alongside it, in fact, the two are reasonably in, insurrep, insurreptible. 
Allison's grandfather. I'm beginning to know his. Inseparable. Thank you. Is called this, this religious power structure is called in chapter 17 Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abomination of the earth. That's the church. The first sentence of verse 12 is a bit confusing on the surface. Does this mean that the second beast could only exercise the authority of the first beast if he was literally standing in the presence of the first beast? That doesn't seem right. Presence here, enopion in the Greek, does mean just that. To be before, to be in the sight of. I am enopion to you. You'll get over it. The NIVs translate this, quote, on his behalf, which is how some commentators interpret it. The margin note in the NASB says, or by his authority, with which, for one, MacArthur agrees. Do these two mean the same thing? Not really. There's a subtle yet critical difference. Now, stay with me. I'm going to get down in the weeds here a little bit. I'll just, just for this long. on behalf of suggests a looser relationship as being simply a representative, as in, he trusts me to speak for him. This text and situation is very similar to that of the two witnesses in chapter 11, verses 3 to 4. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses. Grant authority. And they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. See the similarity. They're, be, they're in his presence. And they, he has granted them authority. Martin Kittle in his commentary explains that in this context... So similar to that in our text about the second beast, Enopion indicates, quote, a prophetic readiness to do the bidding of God and, note this, with the authority inalienable from divine communion. Let me repeat that because it's key. With the authority inalienable from divine communion. In our text, this suggests that the second beast's authority literally emanates from the first, that he is imbued, as it were, with his authority in a manner similar to that that passes between God the Father and his real prophets. The prophets in the Old Testament spoke ex cathedra. That didn't mean that they were just repeating God's words. It didn't mean that they were just saying what he would, something similar to what he would say. They spoke for him. They spoke from the chair, from the throne. That's what ex cathedra means. So, It's a little more than just saying, well, I trust him to speak for me. 
They are speaking for him. They can be trusted. This continues the symmetry between the Holy Trinity and the profane Trinity. The dragon, Satan, grants his power and authority to the beast, Antichrist, chapter 13, verse 2, who in turn grants his authority and power to the second beast, the false prophet. Thus, the false prophet is imbued with satanic power as evidenced by the miracles he will perform. Okay, we're out of the weeds. Verse 12 continues. And he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast, whose fatal wound was healed. I won't revisit here all the arguments and details about this aspect of the beast, who in a number of passages is described as suffering a fatal wound. That is, death. He died, or will die, dies. Then, coming back to life. I I covered that in session 35. Here, however, I'll just add this. Some who believes this who believe this refers to a person not a state or empire that's us take the position that he literally dies and is resurrected i question that for this reason resurrection is a critical component of god's economy For example, it was not Christ's death, but his resurrection that validated his deity and glory. If Christ had not been raised from the dead, as Paul put it, I'll paraphrase, we're a bunch of idiots. If Antichrist is physically resurrected, God would have to sanction such an action. And I don't see that happening. Thus, my position is that the beast's fatality and resurrection are just part of the public relations fakery contrived by the two peas to beasts to sell him to the masses. It isn't real. After all, how better to get the world to worship the beast as God than to claim that he came back from the dead? Just like, wait for it, Jesus Christ. And speaking of the two witnesses in chapter 11, they were resurrected from the dead after three and a half days, very similar to Christ. But in this instance, it makes perfect sense that God would sanction that miracle, for they were his witnesses, not Satan's. Verse 13. Oi. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. Once again, we have a parallel to the two witnesses who could breathe fire to devour their enemies, 11.5. I like that. The false prophet, whether by sleight of hand or a true miraculous sign affected by Satan, could call down fire out of heaven, Uranu, 
the sky. It doesn't have to be from God's place, God's dwelling. It's just from the same word as used for the sky and space. The present active tense of makes, poieo, suggests that the false prophet does this repeatedly. It's a standard shtick. Oh, you don't believe me? Let me call down fire. Here is evidenced the inherent and pervasive depravity of man. It was there when God's word was being written. It is here today and it will still be going strong in the final days of humanity on earth. That evidence is that men will believe a lie before they believe the truth. Present the simple, clear basics of the gospel and they will scoff. But these same people will gladly believe in the healing power of crystals or the snake oil of religious cults or even the lying subterfuge of the false prophet and his God. Paul describes well the irony of the final days. Second, turn please to 2 Thessalonians. Whoever has that, just go ahead and start reading. Who has that? 2 Thessalonians, yeah. 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 to 12. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false, in order that they may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. Took pleasure in wickedness. The fact that man wants to be fooled is demonstrated all around us. We want to believe the magician's tricks. That's part of it. The whole art of drama is based on its ability to make its audience members suspend their disbelief. We begin to believe the actors on stage are revealing to us a real moment out of time. The audience becomes, as it were, the fourth wall of the room that they're in. We watch a musical and accept as normal that people break out into song to express their feelings. For that, we have Isla and Dennis. All of this is just part of harmless entertainment, but it's no longer harmless when one accepts as real the false magic and drama that will ultimately result not just in losing out on salvation, but in spending eternity roasting on a spit. Verse 14, And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. He deceives those who dwell on the earth. They've already rejected Christ, so they're prime, primed to believe a lie. Because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast. Show us some signs, show us some signs, and we'll believe. Where have we heard that before? They demanded it of Christ, and they'll probably demand it of the false prophet, and he'll gladly show them. And the latter they will believe because of their inbred nature. And because the beast's magic will be empowered by Satan himself, it will be strong and impressive. They will be miraculous signs. They'll be wowed. 
They'll believe. But there's a third reason they will so gladly believe. As Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. As he had done before, God will sanction their following of the wrong thing, choosing evil over good. The Greek behind deluding influence, it means literally a working of error. Energeon planes. It means an active power of misleading. Hidden in the English, the Greek shows that the same word energeon lies behind the phrase just above in verse 9, the activity of Satan. They will have rejected his truth, so God will make them believe the lie of Satan. He gives them over to it. He's done that before, and he does it in the end times. He says, you, you, you reject me? Okay, run with it. Verse 14 continues, Telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. I find it particularly disingenuous that the false prophet makes the hoi polloi fashion the very idol they'll be forced to worship as a god. Nice. Talk about watching them make sausage. This seems to indicate the level of power and influence these two men have over the people of the world. Just imagine if someone ordered you to go into your workshop and carve an idol that would then be your god. Your reply might be, well, it's a pretty figurine, but I made every inch of that statue. I cut down the oak tree and sectioned the wood. It was my knife and my own hands that cut every feature it has. I made it. It didn't make me. I am its God. Not the other way around. Isaiah forty sixteen. But no, this idol, this statue dedicated to Antichrist will be what they worship, worship even though they made it. Now, just what will this statue look like? What will it be an image of? When Nebuchadnezzar erected a huge statue and demanded that everyone bow down to it, it was not of him, but probably his patron god, Nabu. Daniel 3. In 167 B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes, Epiphanes, by the way, means God manifest, in an effort to eradicate Jews and Judaism, outlawed all Jewish rites and worship, erected an altar to and a statue of his chief god, Zeus, in the Jerusalem temple, sacrificed swine on the altar, and demanded that all worship Zeus. Both of these are of rulers who erected a statue of their god, not of themselves. Three times in Daniel's prophecy and in Christ's Olivet Discourse, reference is made to, in so many words, the abomination of desolation being set up in the Jerusalem temple. Those who claim the passage listed above, I'm sorry, those who claim the passages listed above, Nebuchadnezzar, Antiochus, as well as 
here in Revelation refer to the acts of Antiochus Epiphanes are missing something. In other words, some people, that's another convoluted sentence. Gee, who wrote this? Some people say, no, this is not future time. This is not end times. This is talking about historically Antiochus Epiphanes, what he did. And there is a similarity. He did an abominable thing, abominable thing in the Jewish temple, yes. Here's the problem with that. When did Antiochus do this? 167 B.C. Jesus spoke of this occurring future to Daniel and future even to himself. In other words, Jesus validated this, that this was going to happen, and he said it's going to happen after Daniel and because Daniel prophesied it, and it happens after me. And he said it about 200 years after the time of Antiochus. Antiochus could only be, at best, a prototype, a foreshadowing of what Antichrist will do in the eschaton. Verse 14 is vague about the actual appearance of the image. Our common translations have it to the beast, for the beast, in honor of the beast, none of which tells us what the statue actually looks like. The CSB, which I'm guessing nobody here has, is of the beast. That's the only one. Verse 15, however, indicates that this image standing in the Jerusalem temple will be an actual image of the beast. All versions, all common versions, the image of the beast three times in that verse. The standard cross-reference in Daniel regarding the abomination of desolation is to nine chapter 9, verse 27, in his prophecy of the 70 weeks. But a parallel passage in Daniel 12 mentions this using cleaner language. Daniel 12, let's look at that. And Daniel 12, verses 10 to 11. Go ahead and start reading, whoever has it. Many will be purged, purified, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand. But those who have insight will understand. And from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Just what does this mean, setting up the abomination of desolation? From verse 11, we get the sequence. First, Antichrist will abolish the normal Mosaic sacrifices, thereby replacing the worship of Yahweh and perhaps of Christ Jesus, with the worship of himself. The false prophet will implement this by creating and quickening, he'll give it life, a statue of Antichrist, which will be erected somewhere within the precincts of the temple. Scripture is not specific about exactly where. It could be in the holy, the holy place. It could be in the Holy of Holies, which would be a true abomination. Or it could just be somewhere in one of the public areas. We, we just don't know, but it will be on the temple grounds. The verb set up is the Hebrew natan, which can be translated give, set, 
hand down, but it also means to deliver to. Now that kind of plays into the idea of him sending people out to, I assume they wouldn't build it on site, to fashion this idol. So they fashion it somewhere else and deliver it to, set it up in the temple. It's invariably interesting to get beneath the surface in Scripture, see what the words mean. We'll see in the following verses in chapter 13 that the second beast will take steps to quicken it, to make it seem that the statue has been brought to life. More on this in our next session. The word abomination means pretty much what one would expect. The Hebrew shakuts means unclean, a detested thing, very often applied to pagan idols. Filth applied to food offerings, things that should not be touched. I'm reminded when Linda's brother and his fiancée were married in a Catholic church, not unexpectedly there was an image of Christ hanging on, suspended over the altar the front of the sanctuary or whatever they call it, over the altar. As people would step out of the audience to contribute to a portion of the thing, you know, they'd been asked by the bride and groom to do something in the ceremony, they would start down the aisle and they would stop and they'd either bow or cross themselves or whatever. Well, when it came time in the service for Linda and I to read some scripture, that's what we'd been asked to do, We refuse to bow before that image. Just walk the aisle. Thank you very much. Ignoring what I frankly considered an abomination. My Lord is seated on a throne next to Father God. He's not on a cross. The abomination Daniel prophesies will be one of desolation. The Hebrew word shamam which means to make uninhabited or deserted, to cause horror or consternation. The word was used of Tamar after being raped by her brother Amnon. She was devastated. What a contrast is presented here. The temple was built for Yahweh, who brought to Israel life and strength and purpose. He set them apart. He, he sanctified Israel. He offered them peace and prosperity if they would only obey his commands. In the temple's holy of holies sat the Ark of the Covenant, signifying the promise, the covenant the Lord God had made with Israel for their good. Atop that ark was the mercy seat where the high priest would meet with God once per year, seeking and receiving His gracious mercy, atoning for that year's sins of of Israel. It was all for good. It was all for sanctification, for holiness. Now that same temple will be profaned. Now it will be dedicated to Antichrist and by extension His Father, Satan. The man-created idol installed there will will represent only pain and suffering, persecution, starvation, and death. Death of a most horrific kind, 
a death of external torment and damnation, eternal torment and damnation. For the next three and one half years, this will be the God worshipped by most of mankind on earth to their eternal regret. Father God, this picture is hideous. It is horrific. We can only acknowledge your sovereign will and accept that you know what you're doing. You have purpose behind this. And it's those reasons, many of which are given in your word. But we weep for those who will go through this. And we offer praise and thanksgiving that we will not. In Jesus' name, amen.